0: It's pretty usual, I cry a lot. <laughs> I don't cry a lot. <laughs> I'm not even sure what to do with myself right now. I have pictures of um, a bunch of little kids in my office up there. You can stop and see them, and they're all <clears throat> three, four, five, six, seven years old. And uh, seven of them are graduated from college. One of them's married and has kids. <laughs> it's just crazy. I mean, you've done that. You've been a part of building those buildings and raising those kids and supporting those families. And it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Um, I'd like you to welcome uh, Dr. Amir Shoaz Bhatti. Did I say that? sir? Even close. This is him here. <laughs> He's a Pakistani pastor that just showed up today. (laughs) No one one invited him. Yeah. No one invited him. I think the Holy Spirit invited him. He's like, I got a service for you. (laughs) Isn't that something? Mm. You're, You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. God bless you. God bless you. Well, you know, we have a uh, simple yet uh, wildly profound uh, and intimate way to become acquainted with Jesus and his message from God, a letter, a letter from one of his closest friends and uh, students, Peter. I printed this out seven or eight weeks ago when we started uh, this series, and it's One of my favorite possessions at this point in my life. I think I'll leave these six pages in my briefcase forever. They've all become dog-eared and taped together because it's torn and there are notes all over it. And when we began this series, I was hoping that we could acquaint you with this authentic letter. I mean, I don't know if I've driven this point home. One of Jesus' closest friends, companions, wrote a letter to some churches, and we have it. You want to know who Jesus is and what his message was? Do what you would do in any situation. Read something that someone who knew them personally wrote, and we have it. Can you imagine, can you imagine when Peter penned these words, which he probably did with a scribe, Do you think he had any idea? I'm sure he couldn't have had any idea what the ultimate circulation of that letter would be. When he sent it out to the northern region of Turkey in five areas in particular that are listed right at the beginning of the book, Cappadocia and Asia Minor and Bithynia, among others, there might have been one church in each one of those locations, maybe two, with 10, maybe 20 people in each church. The circulation of that letter under his direction and intent was maybe 200 people. Do you know how many copies of the Bible are in print today and where it is? Over five billion. <laughs> On five habited inhabited continents, all five continents. In fact, just as a side note, when I was in fifth grade, the answer to the question, how many continents are there, was seven. (laughs) If you didn't write seven, you got it wrong. Now you can write five, six, or seven. Just like everything else in the world, facts are being drifted to the side, and there's answers are what you went through. Side note, (laughs) I was shocked to discover no one knows exactly how many continents there are. There's some reasons for that, but... The Bible has been spread throughout all of those continents and out and into at least 75% of every country and territory in the world. I would suggest probably most likely all of them. The problem is that at least 52 of those countries and territories, it's illegal to have a Bible. So when you ask somebody in that country, you send a survey out to them and say, do you have a Bible? The answer coming from there is no, even if it's yes. Yes. It is everywhere. Can you imagine that Peter would have thought that his letter would have been transcribed and rewritten into over 3,000 languages? The online world gives us a glimpse into even how much people are uh, approaching the Bible. And it is read 24 hours a day, seven days a week, somewhere in the world. Every second of every day. (laughs) Do you think he could have possibly imagined it? I don't think so. We can even track one of the most popular Bible searches and popular verses, and it's what you would imagine, John 3, 16, the summary of the gospel. Jeremiah 21, the Old Testament promise that God has a promise for you and a place for you. Philippians chapter four, Romans eight, Psalm 23, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. You know what people don't read so much? 1 Peter. You know why at this stage of the series? You understand why, right? Here are the five most some of the most popular verses: sorry. This is the day the Lord has made; let us rejoice and be glad at it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and you will find, and it will be open to you. Isaiah. But they that wait upon the Lord shall be renewed in their strength. They will mount up like eagles. They will run. Isaiah. Do not fear, for I am with you. These are the kind of verses that people are looking up. Why aren't they looking up First Peter? Why is no one quoting First Peter? Actually, one verse of Peter's gets read and forwarded to other people. <laughs> humble yourself under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up. I'm not even joking to you. That is the second most shared verse in the Bible. The reason we don't read First Peter and people don't read First Peter, they share it with others because it says, humble yourself and know this, you're going to suffer. No one wants to read that. That's not what we need. We're already suffering. We don't need anybody to remind us of that. But what we found in the pages of Peter, this honest, honest man, is the true gospel. He's not mincing any words. He's telling it like it is. And that's how we need it. It's written by a guy who personally experienced the life-changing impact of Jesus. An original founding leader of the church was a boisterous, ostentatious, even average dude. He was drawn from the ranks of very ordinary people. He was raw, didn't operate under the proper amount of self-control and proud of it, and he was often misguided. This pillar of faith, this follower among followers, world-changing leader, was a dubious choice, but that is not unusual for God and the way God works. We see it very early in the Bible in chapter 11. We see this story about the city uh, that wanted to build a tower, built on the idea that man is confident. He has his own ability to do what he wants to do and he can fulfill uh, what he wants to accomplish. And he could raise himself up so that the rest of the world can see That's the way man operates. I can do it, watch me, look at me, revere me, I'm awesome. God begins in secret, he works with great precision in the lowest parts of the earth. He calls an individual from the crowd, he trains him over a long, long period, patiently, gradually, and he finally makes him a partner the center of a new family, the channel through which he will pour himself forth upon the world. God works so much differently than we do. That's the understatement of the day. Man's methods more often than not end in a babble of confusion. While God's way invariably is consummated, in a way that brings heaven to earth. The majority of those who, from time to time, who have been called like Peter to his service are selected from among the foolish and the weak and the despised ranks of the human family. So that the excellency of God might be clearly of God and not of man. There have been exceptions to that, but the general rule is not many wise or great or nobles according to this world's estimate anyway have been called as we wrap up this series i want to make sure you understand god has a unique and valuable purpose for you in the world but maybe not and probably not in the ways that the world would applaud but in ways that god would applaud If you're stuck in a pursuit of the world's applause, the world's rewards, your soul is deteriorating. You may not know it. And the most meaningful life you were intended to have is being derailed. And if you've been on that path and you feel like you've been on that path too long looking for the world's rewards, and you can't seem to escape it, don't worry. You're just like Peter and all of the kingdom greats. They start in a place that's not all that wonderful. God specializes in repurposing those who are washed up. That's what he does. Renewing those that are worn out. Resurrecting what is otherwise incapacitated. I try to bring you a profound quote Every week. This one's from Jim Carrey. Yes. Dumber Dumber. Yes. I'm saying you have a chance. Yes. Chapter 5, First Peter, to the elders among you, Peter says, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He's writing to the elders of the church. He says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a witness of Christ's sufferings, and I will share in the glory uh, to be revealed. He's outlining, really, the final page of his letter. He's he's outlining what he's already said, humility, humility, He's saying to them, I'm a fellow elder. In fact, he was an apostle. In fact, he was an elder to the elders. But when he writes to the elders, he says, I'm one of you. I'm just like you. He references suffering again. But he reminds of the glory to come. Suffering is... I find myself, every time I reread the letter and I move through it and I hear the word suffering, I find in my head, I'm like, I get it, Peter. I get it, I get it. You've said that again and again and again. It's everywhere though, it's in the Gospels. We read it in Mark chapter four. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. This is life. Life is pain, Highness. That was my quote for last week. Princess Bride, but rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ, you share in them so that you may be overjoyed at the revelation of his glory. If you're following Jesus, don't be surprised that your life is like Jesus. That's the point. He didn't do it so we could avoid it, that is suffering. He did it as an example of how you get through this life. There is a life that is not in alignment with sin that is hard and it includes suffering. Jesus was sinless and he suffered. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you're suffering because you're sinful. Those are two separate issues altogether. There is a narrow path, a difficult path that is in alignment with God's way that does not reap immediate results, but in the most profound of way, rewards us later. To some degree in this lifetime, but in the fullness later. Suffering, if you want to think about it, for, for most of us doesn't include um, uh, any kind of a robust experience of persecution. Some, maybe, here and there. It's more for us something along the lines of delayed gratification. We have hungers, we have emptiness, we have loneliness, we have a longing in our soul for eternity. And we must live with that longing or try to satiate it temporarily and continuously with other things that are not good for us. To suffer, in one sense, is to be hungry, to delay your gratification for the promises of God. A life that is a good life is a suffering life. Because the Christian life doesn't bring the rewards and the reliefs that the world offers and is accustomed to. It might look more like having compassion for an enemy that brings ridicule upon you or your tribe. That's the suffering we might experience. Gratitude in an undesirable situation that we're called to. We prefer to get out of that situation and if we can't get out of that situation, we start to implode. But God says, I'm in control here. You can be grateful. Trust me, it's hard, but it's for your best. Trust me, you can be grateful. That's a suffering of sorts. Patience that leaves you lonely is a suffering Generosity that makes you less comfortable. Generosity that makes you a lot uncomfortable is a form of suffering. Words that make you vulnerable. Saying something true that might get you canceled. Admissions. Admissions that humble you. is suffering. Intentional Losses that make you look weak. Commitments that end up in conflict with your happiness. A promise that constrains your life is a suffering. The good life is a good suffering and a bit like suffering of hunger. To be spiritually alive, to be spiritually growing includes unsatisfied hunger, if you will. We don't, we don't know a lot about being hungry. I bet, I bet, like me, you've never spent life more than 30 seconds away from food. Ever thought about that? Like, if you have food... You you could get it right now in about 10 seconds if you ran out that door and the kids were able to get past the donut station. In your house you're steps from food at any time. If you were completely out of food in your house, you could probably get it inside of 5 minutes. We know nothing about being hungry. I personally knew nothing about being hungry until I was 50. I have a metabolism you would pay lots of money for. <laughs> I could eat whatever I wanted. Most of my life, I wouldn't call myself a bad eater, but I could eat whatever I wanted. And then one day, I was at a weight I said I would never get to, so I stopped snacking in the evening, which meant I was hungry when I went to bed. And for weeks, I was like, "Well, this is no good." <laughs> so I actually had to spend my—I had to watch TV while I was hungry. I had to go to sleep feeling hungry. I'd never experienced that. I had to actually adapt to that, get used to that. The life of following Jesus is like being hungry. You can fill it in all sorts of illegitimate ways. You can fill the hungers for eternity The hunger to be with God, the hunger to understand your full nature and your identity, your your hunger to be apart from sin, or you can fill it, but there is a hunger we are called to live with as believers, and we don't like it. It's not natural, and we have been trained since birth in this country, at least and probably most first world countries, if you're hungry, eat something. The answer is never, well, you know, skip a meal. It's okay, and you're going to be hungry. It's fine. No, if you're hungry, you eat. We're trained, and it slips over into spiritual hunger, emotional hunger, psychological hunger. If we're hungry, we feed it, and Peter's saying, don't. You can't feed this hunger. This is something that's going to resolve itself in eternity, and if you fill it now you threaten that future. He says, be shepherds of God's flock, that is, under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. He says to these elders, to these people in this church, he says, be shepherds and, and don't don't take on a, a role, a title, a, a ministry in the church. Don't take it on for the purposes of your own significance. Have you ever done that? You have. I have. We do. Sometimes the church is the last place people go that can't get their significance from any other place in the world, and then we give it to them with a title, or you with a title or a responsibility, and we're doing you wrong when you get your significance from me or us or the title or the people that you're serving. Peter says, don't don't get your significance from one another. Don't get your significance from what could come from the authority and the responsibility that's been entrusted to you. Get it from the chief shepherd. He says, be shepherds, but be an example to the flock. An example of what? What? Peter is essentially saying, You're all under shepherds. He goes on to talk about the chief shepherd in the next verse. You're an under shepherd. We are all under shepherds. That's why Peter put himself in that rank when he started the letter. He's like, It's not you, me, Jesus. It's me, Jesus, you, Jesus, you, Jesus, you, Jesus. We're all serving Jesus. We're all growing from Jesus. If you're four year old, three-year-old, to whatever it is, your your cognizance of the spiritual world and of Jesus, now you are a disciple of him, whether you're two or 102. My wife says, Jesus has no grandkids. When Jesus becomes your savior, he becomes your master, he becomes your teacher, he becomes your shepherd. Together, we all are following him. And Peter is saying, look, we are all disciples of Christ. Christ. I am no different than you, Peter says, because I'm an apostle. I'm a disciple of Christ, you're a disciple of Christ. And the best thing, Peter says, that you can do for your peers, for one another, for those that you are responsible for if you have them, is to be the best follower of Jesus. Be a good example to the church in what it looks like to follow Jesus. The point is not to get as many followers and disciples as you can. We are to go and make disciples of, it was implied, Jesus. Too often we're making disciples of ourselves and he says, be an example to the flock. You should not be someone who is aspired to, but you should be someone who is aspiring others to Jesus. I've been in so many situations where someone is trying to help someone else find their way to Jesus and their posture somewhat unconsciously is that they are trying to teach them everything that they know, help them with their experiences, walk them through things, help them to understand what they understand. And I have to keep saying, and then, and then there's usually there's some resistance to that person doesn't want to certainly a non-believer doesn't want to humble themselves to the authority of another person. So I'm continually saying to those that are trying to lead others to Christ, get on the same side of the table and show them how you're still trying to understand who Jesus is and still trying to understand what God has for your life and get on that path together. Show them, be an example to them for how it looks to follow him. And Peter's saying, that's all I'm doing. That's all you should be doing. Get on the same side of the table. Be an example to the flock of what it looks like to be a follower. Here he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Let me ask you this Who gets a crown? Who gets a crown? In this world, who gets a crown? Actual question. <laughs> king. True. Even more refined than that would be the heir to the throne. That's who gets the crown. The one who is actually predetermined to be the king is the one who gets the crown. At the beginning of Peter's letter, do you remember he said, and throughout it, you are heirs to the throne. As ones who follow Jesus, you are an heir to the throne. You, you have been given the right to be crowned as a king under the chief king. He's a chief shepherd and he's the chief king. And you're going to get crowned. You're going to get a crown because. In fact, you deserve it, not from what you've done, but because you have been named as an heir to the throne. When the chief shepherd appears, when the chief king appears, when Jesus shows up, when he shows up, when you arrive, when you see him again, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. What you are going to be crowned—I don't know how to for. Try to stay with me. You're becoming something as a follower. You're being transformed, and you're acutely aware of the transformation that needs to take place. You've been told by Peter and throughout the New Testament and through the Gospels who you are in Christ that you're valuable, that you're enough, that you have purpose and a place and a belonging, that you are not identified or uh, uh, quantified by your worst sin, that you are forgiven, that you should have no fear. You know these things to be true, but, am I right? You have a hard time living in it. The world is telling you otherwise, right? You're telling yourself otherwise. I live in a prison of perpetual failure by comparison. I know the scripture tells me not to compare, but I'm a five on the Enneagram. I deal with facts. And that peer of mine is more successful than me. That's a fact. I know I'm not supposed to care, care, or compare or care. My wife is the most productive person I have ever met. I am perpetually less productive. I'm within two or three feet of the awareness of being not as productive. And it affects my identity. I get down on myself. I get discouraged about who I am and how I was made. And none of that has anything to do with who I am or my value or my purpose. And I cannot tell you Yeah, I should affirm my wife does not view me as less productive or less of a person. She doesn't. She thinks the opposite, which is so crazy. It's love. It's blind love, basically. If she was a five, she would know. I'm speaking these numbers. I'm speaking of personality profile things that we use to help us understand one another. I cannot wait, and I suspect neither can you, to be crowned and to experience and feel and be who you truly are. The glory that we anticipate, the crown that is coming Is the day and the moment and the second when all of that comparison, all of those lies, all of those anxieties, all of those messages about who I am, all of those wrong beliefs about who I am, go away and you know who precisely who you are in Christ, in God's eyes. I cannot, I cannot wait to be out of this prison. I would love to tell you that I do not suffer from comparison. It doesn't, in fact, it does I can't wait to not have those thoughts, to know the truth. That's the crown. That's the concrete hope that we have. This suffering, the lies of this world, the view of myself, the difficulty trying to capture the identity that I have in Christ, that is going to end one day and I will know it and feel it and I will be wearing a crown that proves it. That's what's we're that's what we're in store for. Let's go, Let's go right now. <laughs> I love that image. Cuz I understand and I feel that suffering in an acute way in my life. What I can do in this life is not try to fix it too early. To try to have the biggest church and the biggest congregation and the most money and the best voice and the, and, the, and, the, and the most powerful, you know, whatever, messages and all the rewards that come with that. I can do that part and allow the suffering to be knowing concretely and surely that one day I will not have that struggle anymore. He goes on, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. From top to bottom in the church, Peter is saying, humble yourself. He lays it on him pretty thick. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We say to God, why are you doing this to me? Why don't you make me feel differently? Why don't you give me the same rewards you're giving that brother or that believer? Why am I in this place? Why do I have to suffer this way? What is Why, why, why? I, I, you know what? I'm done with you. I trusted you for something and you're not providing it. And I need it, so I'm going to go get it. Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will crown you eventually in ways that you cannot find in this world. Humble yourself. Take it. Realize what it is. You can't fix it. And when you do, you lose him. You lose God. Did you know God discriminates? He favors one group over all the rest, the humble. He favors, literally says he favors the humble and opposes the proud. That's everyone else. If God is in opposition to you, if you feel his presence at all, it's going to be judgment and discipline. We don't want to be on that side of the discrimination, it's the humble that he favors. Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I like Peter, he's like, I know I'm not supposed to worry, but I do. I know I'm not supposed to have anxiety, I'm not supposed to have those hungers and those sufferings, but I do. It is anxiety provoking, Peter says, to live humbly under God's mighty hand. That you will one day be lifted up. That is anxiety provoking. If for no other reason, then you're not living up to your potential in this world and your peers are recognizing it, being kicked out of the club. And then God says, It's okay. It's better for you, actually. But he says, cast all your anxiety on him. Cast all those difficulties on him. He can handle it. Let him know where you're suffering. Let him know the tensions in your life. Let him know, I'm tired of being compared to, or I'm tired of comparing myself. You know what I want to do, God? You know what I want to do is I want to to disempower those that are uh, more productive than me. I want to downplay them. I want to ridicule them, God. That's what I want to do. This is what Paul writes about in his letters. He goes, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't do, I want to do. I have this anxiety within me of wanting to get out from under this suffering to elevate myself and lift myself up. And Peter says, humble yourself. It's going to take time. One day, it'll be better than anything you could have found if you went that way. Humble yourself. The evidence of a Christian Christian character, the center core evidence of a Christian is the ability to submit to someone else. to get wise counsel and do what they say, particularly when it's not what you wanna do. That doesn't even equate in the American mind. I gather all kinds of counsel, and if it lines up with what I wanna do, then I do it. If I get counsel, the difference for me, I tend to look for different counsel. I'm usually just looking for someone to support what I wanna do. And Peter says, submit to one another. When when, when your friends, your believer friends, those that you trust in the church say, I don't think you should do that, maybe you should go this, or maybe you should consider that, even though you want to, you don't. Or you do if they instruct you to do that. How could you possibly do that? How could you look yourself in the mirror? It almost seems like it's wrong to go against your own conscience of what you want to do for someone else. How is that possible? It only possible under uh, the theology of the sovereignty of God, who can make anything work out in what the directions that He wants to make them work out. We always ask in this church that you would yield to leadership. We have been praying together. We're working together in a particular direction. And if you're a part of this church, we are asking you to yield in some of the ways that we're directing. We don't say trust us. We say trust God, because we might be wrong. The good counsel that you get might lead you down the wrong path, but it never leads you down a path other than the one that God has pre-designed for you. And he says, sometimes I want you to go down a path that you won't go down, and I'm going to get other people to get you to go down that path. It's important for you to understand how to submit to one another. We have a sign that comes down. It's above our steps. I don't know why it's still there, but it is, uh, that our boys could read every morning when they went to school. It says, because I'm parent. That's why. And that is not a a definition or an example of of, uh, authoritative, oppressive power. There's a reason behind that sign, and it wasn't because we wanted to be in control. It was because we understood and we know that to live in this world properly, you have to come under the submission of God and some of those he's put in place. And if you don't figure out how to come under people to submit and learn that life is not about you, You're not the center of the world. You're going to be opposed by God. Some of the things we do as parents are random. You let your kids jump on the couch. I do not let the kids jump on my couch. What's important, it's actually flipped. The 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 important thing there is Not whether jumping on a couch is right or wrong. It's whether what your rule is is followed by your children so that they learn how to live under authority because one day if they want to flourish, they have to live under the authority of God. So Peter says, humble yourself, submit to one another, learn how to do that because that's how the whole thing works. We struggle with that, don't we? I do what I want to do. Peter says, you want to know the experience of God's presence? You want to know what it's like to be lifted up? You want to know what it's like to find your true self? Know that it doesn't get found with you on the point. It gets found under submission to others and to Jesus and to God. That's upside down from what we know. If you're bound and determined to do it yourself the way you want, to earn your right to be heard and received by God, to lift yourself up and to be glorified, applauded and recognized for what you have done, you will not enjoy the presence of God. Your concrete hope, your concrete foundation crumbles and the only crowns you will receive will be the ones that rust and are forgotten after you die. Yielding to others trains you to trust God. Because He's going to be there on whatever path you take. It could be the end of you. It could be the end of your reputation following counsel, following Jesus. Most likely will be the end of you, should be the end of you, because we're trying to be transformed into His image, leaving ourselves behind. It might be the end of you, even physically. It was the end of Jesus. It was the end of Peter. It was the end of Stephen. He finishes, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Don't think you can go to another church and avoid suffering. Don't think you can go to another country and avoid suffering. Remember, to be spiritually alive includes unsatisfied hungers, difficulties, suffering, unsatisfied hunger. I, don't, I find it incredibly ironic and maybe intentional that Peter says a roaring lion is looking around for someone to devour. The devil is starving. He has no concrete hope, no promise, no way of getting that hunger satiated, so he's eating you and me. He's taking your hunger, causing it to drive you into his ways and his worlds, and he's eating you alive. To steal and eat and swallow your identity. He's trying to get you to identify yourself in some way other than Jesus' own son or daughter. He's trying to eat that identity. He's trying to drive you away from the identity that you will one day be crowned into fullness. The lies of you're not enough. You're prideful. You have doubts. You compare yourself. You're going to lose what you have. You're going to lose who you are. You don't work hard enough. You work too hard. What are the answers to those questions? Is it to become more than enough? Is it to become less prideful probably? Is it to not have doubts? Is it to, no, the answer, those are not the point. That's the trap that is set for you by the devil. I'm gonna show you where your life is wrong, where it is actually truly wrong, and then I'm gonna try to get you to solve that in some way apart from your identity in Christ. That's what I'm gonna do. Doesn't do any good to call devil a liar where he's not lying. (laughs) He starts with the truth. You're not enough. And that's true in this world, not to God. And that's the distraction. We go, oh yeah, I'm not enough. I should have more. I should be more. I should belong somewhere. I should, that's the trap. You're not enough. You need to find it. You better find it now. Peter says, no, 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 don't fall for that trap. He's trying to eat you alive. He's trying to eat your identity. You have an identity. You are an heir to throne. You're going to be crowned. The devil says, I'm going to take you out. And what do we say? I'm taking myself out. I don't need you. I'm out. I died with Christ so that I might be lifted with him. You can't take me out. I'm dead. All you can do is make me try to get my life back in some superficial, worldly way. And that's no life at all. And the God of all grace, Peter says, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Where? Now? Probably not. That's prosperity gospel. This is all future. There is some bit of heaven that we get to enjoy now. We have some of our identity, and we can get up and over all of our stuff. And Jesus has forgiven us, and we can live free in many ways. But the fullness of being who we are intended to be is yet to come, and it is going to be glorious. And Peter says, to him be the power forever and ever. We misunderstand power in the Bible so much. What's the power? The power is what's been done for you in Christ that cannot be undone. When you put your faith in Him, He puts His Spirit in you, you are reconciled to God and no one's going to change that, and you are an heir to the throne and you will get the crown. Nothing, nothing can get in the way of that. Nothing. That is powerful. Nothing, not even your mistakes. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to unearn it. No matter how poorly you live your life, and you can't get up on over it. You trust Jesus for your reconciliation with God. It is yours. You are an heir. You're gonna get a crown. And one day you're gonna shed all of that and you're gonna to be totally who you were supposed to be. And it is concrete, absolute, for sure going to happen. That is powerful. Nobody can take it away from you now. How low you get, no matter how bad you are, that's power. You can't kill me. You can't take my identity. I can't even screw it up so bad that I lose it. In Christ, it's mine. That's power. That's the power. It's not. It's not some power from God that makes me powerful in this world. Jesus didn't come to make you the best human ever. He came to ask you to do things that make the world better, that cost you your whole life. Maybe in complete obscurity. You ever think about Stephen? Stoned. I know what time it is, by the way. I'm not stopping. You know what, Stephen... Young man, probably destined in one sense to be better than Paul or Peter. He laid down his life right there. He was stoned right right when he was gonna be catapulted. And that was the best thing for humanity in God's eyes to do with Stephen's life right there. And have any issue with that? There is no power that can affect your identity and the crown that's coming your way. It's a concrete hope. Your suffering, hungry, humble, humbling life in Christ subjects you to a powerful end that cannot absolutely not, unequivocally not, be taken or diminished. The song we sang that says he won't, should, but it's theologically confusing for people, should say he can't. People say, oh, there's nothing that God can't do. There actually are things that God can't do because he has hemmed himself in with promises, and he never breaks his promise. He won't, that's for sure. But he has promised, that's the power. You trust his son, you're in, that's it. He's not changing that. He's made it, he can't, he won't. It's much easier to sing. There are three ways to handle evil in this world. You either pay it back with evil, which makes the world worse. You try to contain it, which also does not work. Try to put it inside of a prison, inside of a box. That doesn't work. Or you absorb it. You stake it. That's our model. That's what Jesus did. That's what Stephen did. It doesn't work right in our psyche. Our psyche says, you got to stand up. You got to stand up and win. And Jesus says, you don't. You humble yourself. I might need to take you out and send a message to a world that needs it and to see a different way. We absorb it. Stephen and Peter and Jesus did what is by all measures humanly impossible, unjustly, even unlawfully destroyed. Peter was a dynamic, powerful person who could have mounted an unsuccessful but damaging preemptive attack. He could have done it but he knew it wasn't Jesus' way. He knew there was something beyond the preservation of his own life. He knew there was something in the suffering and in the dying that brought about a crown of glory. He knew that that, because of Jesus' example, was the most effective means of promulgating the gospel and getting his letter to go completely around the world. Had he mounted an attack and defended his life and managed to fend off what God had intended for his end in that moment, you could argue, at least for the point of illustration, that he, we would not have this letter. It would have been made into a self-help book, and, self-help book. That's what it would have been. How to preserve yourself. It would not have been the gospel anymore. So I'll finish with this. Instead, this suspicious choice from the very beginning, Peter, in the end, was one of the greatest followers of Jesus for nearly 40 years until he was crucified upside down because he asked to be crucified differently than Jesus because he didn't feel like he deserved that in his early 60s. A humble, Peter died, a humble, submitted, sacrificial force who stood on a concrete hope who could not be eaten or altered by evil, moved by evil threats or persuaded to save his own life because it wasn't his And because he was awaiting to be crowned with his true, full self by the master and brother, he missed so much. Peter knew with concrete certainty that if you took his life, you gave it to him. We have the same concrete truth and hope. It starts in this life. Finds its fulfillment in the next the good life, the good suffering includes a lot of beautiful things in this world. But we're hungry and we suffer. And then there are beautiful ends that are otherwise unattainable where there is no suffering, there is no hunger, and there is the fullness of everything God ever intended. In Jesus' name, amen. Are we singing more? Adam, are you coming up? Huh? Huh? Kim. Oh, Kim! Kimmy! Come on. Everyone listen to Kimmy. Suck it up. Remember uh, to smack yourself in the face. Uh, give her your attention even though you're late.